Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. Exorcisms and Demons. In his new book, American Possessions, Fighting Demons in the Contemporary United States, Sean McLeod argues that not only have such phenomena been on the rise for the last 30 or so years, they also reveal prominent tropes within the contemporary American religious landscape. More precisely, readers are introduced to the first in-depth study of demon fighting in the so-called spiritual warfare of third wave evangelical and Pentecostal Christianity, a movement that also has global ramifications. McLeod examines third wave practices such as deliverance rituals, spiritual housekeeping, and spiritual mapping. In short, demons are a central fact of life in the imagination of millions of Christians around the globe. So get ready for some demon busting with Sean McLeod. I'm pleased to welcome him to the program. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me, Hillary. Thanks for being here. This could be very informative, hopefully, for our listeners in case they are dealing with some hauntings. Um, so I wanted uh, I wanted to begin by asking you to clarify for us what you mean by third wave Christianity. Yeah, that's a good question because if you've ever heard the phrase spiritual warfare, there are lots of meanings of the term in lots of different groups, um, evangelicals, but also Catholics who use the term. Um, my specific focus is on a third wave. It's self-defined. It was a term coined by a former Fuller Theological Seminary professor, uh, C. Peter Wagner, in several articles and books that he wrote in the 1980s. And he called it the third wave because it's what him and some of his colleagues viewed as a new evangelical movement of the Holy Spirit. So they, they saw two previous waves. That was the birth of Pentecostalism at the turn of the 20th century, and then the charismatic movement of the 1960s and early 70s. So they saw themselves as the third wave of the Holy Spirit. And that third wave was focused uh, at this point in history as they, they see themselves living in the end times and in a period when Satan has kind of ramped up his army of demons to fight for souls uh, to bring to hell before the end of the world. So the focus of third wave evangelicalism, among other things, then was going to be getting demons out of people, objects, and places. And as you mentioned in the book, third wave evangelicalism does have an institutional structure. So we're not just talking about individuals and demons. There's more to it than that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are at least a dozen to two dozen prominent uh, networks of spiritual warfare practitioners that are all within the third wave in the United States. But even more than the United States, it's also an international movement. So in fact, a lot of the demonology and theology of demons that American third wave uh, writers, practitioners got came from mission fields 
in Central and Southern America, in Southeast Asia, in Africa. How and when did you begin to notice the prevalence of demons in this form of Christianity? What drew you to this study in particular? There were actually a couple interactions with, uh, with people. Uh, <laughs> so, first of all, I used to have uh, a temporary teaching gig in rural Michigan. And I, I had my kind of first experience was a student uh, who liked to come into my office and just talk about American religion because I was teaching American religion courses, among other things. Came in one morning and talked about how tired he was because he'd been out really late the previous night. And I'm assuming, oh, yeah, so drunken party or something, right? But then he started to detail that he was up really late because he and his friends had gone on a prayer walk, which they went around to places in the city. Uh, actually, it was kind of a mid-sized town where this university was to um, pray over places they felt were demon-possessed, uh, throw some oil, say some prayers, and try to help get the demons out of those specific places. And the specific places he mentioned were somewhat telling to me as well, right? So uh, they went to a Latter-day Saints meeting place and prayed outside of that, some Mormons. They went to a bar that uh, he described as gay-friendly. They went to a Masonic temple. And they went to a tree on campus that he said had Native American demons living in it. So this, this spurred my interest, and I, I started asking him a lot more questions. When I moved to North Carolina um, for the, the job I'm still in, I started meeting individuals outside of the university as well as students in the university who spoke a language of, of demons. Uh, of deliverance ministry, because that's the Protestant term that uh, is sort of like, but not quite similar to exorcisms. Um, so it, it became apparent to me that this was much larger than perhaps I, I once thought it was. I mean, I'd heard of it before, but I had no idea that it was so extensive. And, you know, the fact that maybe half of the students sitting in some of my classes, whether they believed it or not, were quite aware of it. I want to get back to this idea about deliverance in a moment, but first maybe we could talk about the actual sources that you use in the book. Sometimes you tell stories, I mean, real experiences, for example, the the experience of that prayer walk in Michigan, but mainly you rely on third wave manuals and literature. Why did you decide to focus your efforts on those documents? And can you give us a sense of what that kind of literature looks like? Who's writing it? What does it say? Yes, because I did end up interviewing quite a few people, um, talking to folks, but it was not an ethnographic study, which I think it would be an excellent thing. And there's already a, a scholar, um, Liza McAllister, who's doing an ethnographic study of third wave spiritual warfare in Haiti. So I, 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 a couple articles have come out. I'm looking forward to more of her work coming out on that. Also, uh, Kevin Lewis O'Neill. Uh, who I think now is at the University of Toronto, um, also uh, has written a little bit on um, spiritual warfare in a third wave specific sort of spiritual warfare with a prominent spiritual warfare leader in Central America. Um, but for the most part, I do focus on texts. And so the primary sources I'm examining are handbooks. Uh, the authors call them training manuals how-to tomes, practical guides that teach practitioners how to conduct 
uh, a very specifically third forms, uh, third wave form of spiritual warfare against Satan and his demons. Um, so who writes these? Uh, these are written by prominent leaders in third wave evangelicalism. So people like C. Peter Wagner, Rebecca Greenwood, uh, Eddie and Alice Smith, Chuck Pierce, Cynthia, I'm sorry, I'm Cindy, Cindy, oh, Cindy Jacobs. Cindy Jacobs. Yeah. yeah. She's a, um, she's a good some, one. I like yeah, her in the book. And these are just some of the authors. There are other authors too, but the people I just mentioned um, have a certain role in third wave evangelicalism as part of uh, almost considered and literally considered in some senses new apostles. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the subgroups of third wave evangelicalism is the new apostolic reformation in which the, there's a notion that there's a new set of apostles in the end times. And the most prominent spiritual warfare handbook authors who are third wave are the apostles themselves. So it's, there are different types of spiritual warfare handbooks, and they teach different things. So one teaches ground-level spiritual warfare. So the demons who are busy tormenting individuals, infesting um you know, on a case-by-case, person-by-person basis. Uh, there are handbooks that teach you how to get demons out of the bodies, in other words, of these individuals. There are others that deal with what they call occult-level spiritual warfare. And these are demons who are a little more powerful and infest uh, entire groups of people and entire movements. Then there's a third level that's known as strategic-level spiritual warfare. And these handbooks focus on... Uh, the demons that are negatively influencing, say, entire cities, regions, even nation states, or parts of the world, like parts of Africa, for example. And that's strategic level spiritual warfare again. So the handbooks kind of break into different categories, and I try to deal with them all. And I ended up, you know, it, it took a while when I first got into this, finding that there were so many different forms of spiritual warfare, and then actually having to pin down uh, which ones were clearly third wave forms. Right, because there is a difference, for example, between spiritual warfare in a Catholic context, let's say, with which some of our listeners might be more familiar, at least from popular culture, and this third wave form of deliverance. Can you elaborate a little bit on what makes it third wave? In addition to the idea that these are self-identified third wave practitioners, authors, ministers. In practice, uh, and, and this is not particular to third wave, but uh, other forms of, say, Protestant spiritual warfare, especially evangelical and Pentecostal, um, there's the notion that there's never such thing as a full possession. Uh, in, in other words, that third wave practitioners in particular always say that there's some aspect of free will still in a human being, that it can be almost, you can be almost completely controlled by a demon. But at the same time, um, there is some modicum of free will that God has always given you that you can tap into. And I find this part of it particularly interesting because third wave practitioners, third wave writers are also folks who um, write books on biblical economics sometimes and support neoliberal forms of capitalism, which, of course, also depends upon notions of free will, autonomous individuals who can sell their labor. 
Maybe we can go back to the actual rituals at play. I, I definitely want to return to this notion of neoliberalism, since it forms a big part of your argument, especially towards the end of the book. But when we talk about the actual rituals that are being performed, you talk about three primary methods of intercession, deliverance rituals, spiritual housekeeping, and spiritual mapping. What are those? What do they look like? The deliverance rituals. Uh, let me give you two examples. Uh, well, no, one example of each would be fine, right? Or I could go on and on. <laughs> so one example of a deliverance ritual uh, would be focused on individuals again. And this would say perhaps it could take place in your home. It could take place at a Wednesday night church service. You feel or your relatives, your loved ones, members of your church feel that there is a demon bothering you. So you uh, are in a prayer circle. One to four or five people might be praying around you, uh, trying to bind the demon. So in other words, the demon is controlling you even though you still have free will. Uh, the idea that they'll pray certain prayers to bind the demon so that the demon will not be able to uh, influence you. And you can have at least a, a certain portion where you have 100% free will and can also fight to get the demon out. Um, so imagine, uh, you know, very active kind of kinetic prayers going on, uh, touching on the forehead perhaps or on the shoulders going on. And it's interesting because different groups have different signs they look for to see if a demon has been removed. Um, so it might be a cough. Uh, there's a group outside of Charlotte, North Carolina that actually, and this is rare, right? Uh, this is a more extreme version, but they uh, say that de when demons leave, they're vomited out of the body. Uh, sometimes it's just a simple feeling of lightweightness, like you had something heavy on your shoulders and now you feel light. Uh, so deliverance ministries focused on individuals. The spiritual housekeeping, which I'm, I'm just particularly fascinated by because it has to do with material objects. It has to do with haunted houses, for example, right? And also possessions. A, a great example, and I think I mentioned this in the book, as I was interviewing uh, a guy who was in his mid-20s, his mid and when he was younger uh, in his, you know, 10 to 12 year old uh, age, his parents were thought of as the best deliverance ministers in their church. And they would pray over his toys on a weekly or biweekly basis to make sure that new toys that came into the house didn't have any demons actually living in them or that demons weren't somehow invited by their son into one of the toys they had. And after they prayed over it, God sometimes would show them that certain toys did have demons in them. They would say prayers over the toys, and they would either break the toys and throw them in the wastebasket, or in some cases, depending upon what they were made out of, they would burn the toys. And this also happens with books that enter the house, uh, especially if it's a book about, say, other people's religions, or it's a book that has haunted pictures in it of graveyards and various things, or especially something like a, a book for Masons. Um, these things will, will be prayed over to literally get the demon out, but then you destroy the book so the demon wouldn't return in it, because by its very nature, uh, a book on Masonic rules would have demons wanting to flock to it. In terms of you do tell that story in the book, and, and you note that the, the young guy in his 20s still can't walk through certain yes. aisles of a bookstore, you know, the new age aisles of a bookstore without feeling uh, a bit of that shiver or, or a video store of haunted, you know, sort of horror movies and things without feeling 
a bit of that shiver, like there might be something present. Yeah, and I find that so striking, right? Because, you know, in the academic study of religion, I think in a good way, we're turning to physicality, materiality, and bodies more than maybe earlier uh, academic studies of religion and scholars did. And the notion that, you know, he told me that intellectually, he doesn't think that a demon lives in a, a horror movie DVD box. Uh, at the same time, because he grew up maybe the first 15 to 20 years of his life in a household where he did believe that, you know, even to this day, five, six years later, uh, whenever he sees something like that, of course, he has that affective emotional response. His heart rate goes up. He feels sick to his stomach and he wants to get out of that aisle at Target or wherever he might be that have the horror movies because, of course, that's still embodied in him in particular ways. Which is fascinating because it also tells us something about what it must be like to walk through life as someone who does see demons everywhere, that walking through Target or Walmart or the video store is a very different emotional experience, probably, than for someone who does not have this belief in demons in all these objects around them. Yes, absolutely. And something that he told me they did for him, and, and I've had other people tell me the same things, uh, sometimes telling me that they do it themselves. <laughs> in fact, I had somebody I interviewed in my office um, to ask questions. He was an, an adult man, and uh, he's still a practitioner. And he noticed I, I had my, a short sleeve shirt on. I have a tattoo I have gargoyles in my office. I have all sorts of toys, too, in my office. But there were things that made him very uncomfortable, and he told me that. And he said that, you know, you might have demons uh, in this place because of this. But he told me he, um, as he does whenever he goes out of his house, he prays the armor of God on him so he's somehow protected when he's going out. And, and the person I was talking about, who still to this day has this physical reaction when he goes and sees a horror movie in a, a chain store somewhere, um, said that his parents uh, couldn't afford to take him to a uh, private Christian school, so he went to a public school. But they insisted on driving him to school every day and praying the armor of God over him so he would be protected from the demons that obviously would inhabit this public school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a very different mindset than probably many of us have when we're walking down the street. We don't have these sort of fears or these effective responses because of that. Yeah, it's fascinating. And this maybe brings us to spiritual mapping, which I think you were about to talk about a moment ago. What is spiritual mapping? Yeah, so this is uh, the great example was the person in Michigan who talked about the prayer walk. So spiritual mapping is using, and um, the founder, I guess you could say, uh, of spiritual mapping is um, uh, third wave, evangelical named George Otis, and it's taking certain selective forms of history about a location, as well as praying and asking God for direction in that location to actually map out, say, a town, uh, a larger city, uh, a neighborhood, and find where the demonic strongholds are in this location. So you you have both kind of a, a map in your head, but you also literally uh, make a spiritual map 
of a certain region and you find where those strongholds are and then you and a group of prayer walkers so it wouldn't be one person but it might be a half a dozen people go to these specific places and try to bind the demons who are in control of that area what forms do these demons take why might someone be possessed by a demon including a christian person and what other kinds of demons are there still haunting the u.s landscape i'm thinking here of the uh, aboriginal spirit caught in the tree, for example. Yeah, exactly. Um, And this is very interesting and complicated, right, to me. And and this is why it's so fascinating among us. Well, it's fascinating for so many reasons. But so demons can be acquired, I, I guess you can say, through your own sinful choices as an individual. Um, demons can also be acquired genetically through your relatives, meaning that uh, you might be a, um, a devout third-wave evangelical, uh, but at the same time, you, maybe you had a great-grandfather, great-grandmother who practiced some form of occultism, and you've inherited that uh, through the generations, so that demon is still kind of in your family, and you still may have problems. So even if you haven't done anything sinful, you still have that in your system. And then there's a third way to encounter demons, And that's through happenstance encounters. So if you uh, happen upon a part of American history, (laughs) so if you're in a former um, indigenous, you know, Native American space, there might actually be demons that reside in that space, even if that space today is a Southern California suburb that actually just used to be where a certain Native American group lived. Um, so this already uh, to you might sound somewhat like Poltergeist, uh, if you remember the movie Poltergeist. But it's uh, Poltergeist is lived, I guess you could say, in the concept of spiritual mapping and the notion that some groups, uh, because of tragedies that occurred to them or because they practice uh, religions that were demonic because they were non-Christian, non-evangelical religions, those demons stick around. And they can torment people who might not have any direct, you know, urge or desire to do anything sinful or practice a non-evangelical form of religion. You point out in the book that there's this real tension between evangelical Christians or these third wave evangelical Christians and other people's religions. You've talked a little bit about Masons, for example, and there's New Agers as well. There's also other people's religions who are non-Christians and maybe more generally the problem with the culture of tolerance, as Cindy Jacobs, one of those writers of the manuals, says. So this is all this is all a big problem, is it not, for demon hunters in third wave evangelicalism? You know, we can look at the history of religious interactions in the United States And, um, you know, even going back to, say, the 1893 World Parliament of Religions, where people of different religions got together and uh, I don't know what scholar described it this, but uh, kind of argued with each other uh, quite a bit about which religion was better and which was true. Um, In this case, for third wave evangelicals, other people's religions and in cases other people's cultures uh, meaning in this case non-evangelical and specifically non-third wave evangelical religions and cultures uh, aren't just bad in some way, but they're literally demonized, right? They, they not figuratively, but literally have demons in them. Mm-hmm. 
So other people's religions uh, are dangerous in that sense. And yes, you're right. People like Cindy Jacobs, Alice Patterson, uh, Ed Murphy have all made comments, uh, both in interviews, but also in, in their spiritual warfare handbooks, that uh, pluralism, toleration is a horrible thing because this brings demons uh, into our bodies, into our homes, endangers our children. How does all of this interact with American politics? I kind of wanted at one point to describe third wave evangelicalism and its practice of spiritual warfare as almost a theological version of a, an American Tea Party movement. And, and I, I hesitated to do that in, in the book because I think the Tea Party is probably a little broader than uh, some people think. Uh, I don't think it's just the stereotype of um, necessarily uh, radical conservatives uh, who stand at the far, far right wing of the Republican Party. But in terms of politics, the uh, when third wave uh, evangelicals have become involved in politics, it has been uh, with the right wing of the Republican Party. So, uh, sorry, a little blip there. I had to remember her name. So when Sarah Palin, for example, was running for the, the presidential nomination for the Republican Party, uh, there's a famous video are on YouTube right now of having a, a famous um, African pastor, spiritual warfare pastor who's involved in third wave things, Thomas Muthi, come to her Assemblies of God in Wasilla, Alaska, and pray over her to essentially put armor on her so that witchcraft and demons could not affect her on the campaign trail. Who is the gentleman, uh, another, te- uh, Rick Perry, I'm sorry, I couldn't Think of it. Rick Perry in Texas, when he was running for president, um, invited the New Apostolic Reformation, which is, again, they're all third wave evangelicals, uh, to feature a um, prayer weekend, I guess you could say, for his campaign. And Alice Patterson, who is a, a third wave uh, spiritual warfare handbook author, uh, actually ran his campaign for a while. And she's written about trying to bring African Americans uh, into the Republican Party and writes at length, and I, I mentioned this in the book, on the demonization of the Democratic and Republican parties. And it's kind of interesting because the demons that run the uh, Democratic Party are demons of willfulness. Um, so the Jezebel demon, which makes it seem as though women should be equal to men in some way. Um, demons of homosexuality, demons of abortion. Uh, but when she talks about the demonization of the Republican Party, the demonization is the Ahab structure, she calls it. And what she means by that is it's a figure who was too willing to give in to people, uh, was too willing to negotiate and discuss. So the demonic problem that Republicans have is they're willing to negotiate with demons, literally, because that's bad. So they have become, at times, involved at least the leaders, I should say, in American politics. And it has been uh, very, very right-wing versions. Now, other folks, such as C. Peter Wagner, when he appeared on NPR's, um, mm, what is it called? Fresh Air, I think, with Terry Gross. uh, He didn't want to speak at all to politics. So some are more careful. uh, Some, like Alice Patterson and Cindy Jacobs, are much more vocal about it. And I think it's really important here to say that on the 
ground level, you know, what's happening in people's churches and houses are usually a lot less politicized than the leaders. And I think we could probably say that about almost all forms of American Christianities. Yeah, certainly the work that I was doing on trips to Israel-Palestine viewed as highly political by leaders who are leading these trips, much, much less so for people who are actually taking the trips. I liked also, by the way, that uh, politicians uh, are sort of pop culture politicians like Sarah Palin and Rick Perry would slip your mind. Uh, I think this is probably a good thing, <laughs> putting, putting them in their place. But also might uh, do it. I'm not that uh, not that bright when I wake up in the morning, but as the day goes on, I just get dumber and dumber. So now we're <laughs> around 1230. Uh, so it's just a good thing you're not talking to me at 330. I probably wouldn't remember my name. <laughs> This is going to give your students, of course, at, at UNC, lots of armor for the future, right? When, <laughs> they already what, know this, yes. They already. <laughs> what time did you grade my paper at? <laughs> Was that when you were getting dumber and dumber? <laughs> yeah, only before 10 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So in American Possessions, you lead us through three major themes that uh, you argue saturate U.S. religion and also the demon fighters that you were studying the consumerist, the therapeutic, and the haunted. I wanted to go through each one a little more carefully with you. So first, I was wondering how demon fighting intersects with consumer objects and other sorts of possessions, such as uh, spiritual entities roaming your house, for example. Well, I think, you know, and it's kind of why the title is American Possessions, is that I really hoped to evoke two meanings for possessions that pointed to the work's themes and the interactions between third wave evangelicalism and things going on in American culture. So I, I kind of think of U.S. religious culture in the 21st century, at least one of the ways, right? Because there are so many ways we could narrate a story like that. Um, but kind of is characterized as immersed and constitutive of an era of possessions. So on the one hand, consumer goods, objects, mass media technologies, and on the other of spirit entities such as demons and ghosts. Um, so I, I think in this, in this, and I, I mentioned this in the book. So similar to Katie Lofton's work in Oprah, the Gospel of an Icon, in which she tells us by looking at Oprah, we can tell something about uh, contemporary American religion and contemporary American economy. I think we can do something similar with third wave evangelicalism and its practice of spiritual warfare, I think it provides a case study to see these trends of the consumerist, the haunted, and the therapeutic merging in certain ways. I really like the term that you use, gothic therapeutic, and that brings hauntings into the realm of these questions about growth and self-identity and therapy in U.S. religion and, and consumption as well. At first, however, it may be hard to see the connection between something like the power of positive thinking and demon fighting. <laughs> what is the Gothic therapeutic and what do those connections look like? Yeah, in fact, the, you know, the, the notion of Gothic and the notion of therapeutic both conjure completely different things in some ways, right? So uh, I was struck at one that the language that spiritual warfare manuals use could in some cases, be pulled directly out of any number of self-help books. And, and I think one of the most vivid examples for me was when in Alice Smith, Alice Smith's book, 
uh, she used the concept of law of attraction to talk about how it's very important to always remain positive about things. Um, the law of attraction assures us, she says, right, that, uh, you know, good will bring good, bad will bring bad. Um, this could come out of Rhonda Burns' The Secret video series or her interviews on Oprah or the book that came out from it. Um, so, which is funny also to think about because the notion of law of attraction comes out of uh, kind of a religious uh, new thought movement background that Alice Smith herself and her colleagues in third wave would see as demonic in a very literal way. But that language is still there. At the same time, there's something, there's a twist to this that makes it gothic, I think, right? And when we think of gothic, uh, we think of these haunted returning pasts. Uh, you know, we might think of decaying castles, the notion that people are trapped uh, to repeat these destinies over and over. And at least in some notions of self-help, not in addiction literature, which I think there's an interesting connection here too, but in certain notions of self-help, through the positive thinking, we can kind of wipe the past clean. In third wave evangelicalism, you can be delivered from demons. Spaces can be delivered from demons, but they're almost always going to return and they're going to return time and time again. So the past whether it's an individual past or a corporate social past, keeps coming back to haunt us time and time again. So thus it's a therapeutic in its language, its rhetoric, and in its practice. But at the same time, it's a very gothic therapeutic because nothing ever is banished forever, I guess you could say. Regarding these kinds of hauntings, and you were just alluding to it a moment ago as well, you note that deliverance narratives occupy this really fascinating place in between human choice and imposition or compulsion. You know, we're in control, but we're not. You can seize control of these demon hauntings. It's also your own fault. How does that question about human agency play out in your work? This is the part of third wave evangelicalism that I find most interesting. And really it came, I, I became quite interested in, conceptions that different religious groups and also scholars have in human agency. When I was working on a book on religion and class a number of years ago, I think what, like seven or eight years ago at this point. Um, and it's really picked up in the latter part of this book, starting in a, the chapter of the Gothic therapeutic going into the final ultimate chapter of the book. And, and this is where we can, I guess, I think come back to uh, neoliberalism and its ideas. So, that kind of loose-knit group of evangelicals that make up the third wave embrace ideas of human free will, individualism. They're pro-globalization when it comes to the market because they are pro-free market capitalism. So in some ways it's interesting because they share with neoliberal capitalism, they share with kind of enlightenment, I, I, you can use these words better than me because you know about it better than me, but something, you know, in the kind of the age of the American enlightenment, when you have this notion of a Republican individual, um, you know, early 1800s who has the free will, you know, to be a citizen uh, fully, merging again with this idea of an evangelical who has 100% free will, an Arminian free will to choose salvation or damnation. 
You know, so they love this, right? They use this language. They support uh, notions of free will. They support neoliberal forms of capitalism. But at the same time, they have demons. So they have these figures who almost contradictorily, it's not contradictory, but contradictorily seem to tell us that you can never get rid of your past. Right, that we are somehow tied to our family, to the social locations we come from, the material conditions we come from. And those things are going to haunt us in the form of demons. And we're always fighting to get rid of them. So you see these really fascinating engagements with agency in spiritual warfare handbooks, in which they deal with the, uh, you know, these extreme examples. So what if a baby at age one year old is in a horrible fire and is given comfort by a demon uh, before they're pulled out of the fire? So does a human child who's one year old have the free will to actually choose to accept that comfort from a demon? And the answer is always conflicted in these, but it's also a yes, usually. Right, so the individual, I can't even remember at this point which scholar, uh, I'm sorry, which um, third wave writer was discussing this, but said, yeah, that, you know, that infant even had a choice at one point, you know, could have rejected the comfort. But because she didn't as a one-year-old, she's being tormented by demons as a 35-year-old. So it's her fault in some sense. So uh, I'm just fascinated by how agency kind of flows in different directions in confused ways, but in saying that, I don't really, I'm not trying to call out third wave evangelicalism because I think that third wave evangelicalism in some ways when they discuss agency reflects larger conversations we have right now in the contemporary period about agency. You know, neoliberal forms of capitalism itself and the confusion over what it means to be a free will agent uh, isn't just a conversation that third wave evangelicals have, but rather many of us have. And that's really the point that you're making in the third chapter is that the kinds of discussions that you're drawing out of these manuals intersect with how sociologists, historians, anthropologists have talked about this neoliberal era that has actually arisen over the same period of time, the last 30 to 40 years, as third wave evangelicalism. Exactly, exactly. And what do both do? I think both neoliberalism and third wave spiritual warfare dematerialize the world, at least rhetorically, right? They're, they can't literally dematerialize the world, right? But they, they rhetorically do by denying the power of social and material differences, you know, that are spurred by economic structures, by class, race, gender, historically embodied variables. You offer that really fantastic Margaret Thatcher quote. There are no societies, only men and women and families or something like right. that, right? Yes. <laughs> but a good example of neoliberal economics, which we could also see as overlapping onto the kind of language being used by these demon fighters in a sense. Yes. Yes. But what the neoliberal capitalists don't have is they don't have demons, <laughs> of course. Uh, right? Who keep coming back and reminding them all the time that history and the material past matters in some way. Although who knows, Margaret Thatcher might have had, <laughs> there might have been some hauntings happening at Downing Street. So I'd, I'd like to push you on the spot for our penultimate question. You note in your acknowledge, 
acknowledgements that you wrote this book with a continuous soundtrack playing in the background. <laughs> and I'm also going to out you as a musician because I think it's extremely cool that you're in a band. That's only because you haven't heard the band. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's leave some of the mystery, shall we? <laughs> so given that um, you had this soundtrack playing while you were writing, I want to ask you for some top picks. So first, what track <laughs> would you recommend for someone writing a book on demon fighting? Wow. Yeah, that does put me on the spot. Um, you, I, I should back up and say that I have a lot of different musical tastes. And when I write, I can't listen to particular things that have very steady beats um, because I'll end up following that and not paying attention to what I'm doing. So when I was writing this, I was mainly listening to ambient and drone and occasional doom metal. <laughs> so I guess one thing that I would start with uh, would be the, the band Gates and their album Moths Have Eaten the Core. It's about 70 minutes long, and it might only have two or three notes the entire time, but it has this beautiful steady drone that's almost like a, a heavy fan or a heavy instrument or equipment behind you. Uh, for some reason, I find that sort of thing comforting. Other people might find it horrific. I'm not really sure. <laughs> I like that. So what about, I know that we have a lot of grad students who listen to NBIR. So for all those grad students who are listening, what track would you recommend for getting a PhD dissertation done on time? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> all, all I could think about was something like Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, um, okay, I've got one for you. And it's not even a, a band I listen to that much, but ACDC Problem Child. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that works. All right. So PhD students, take note. <laughs> Sean McLeod, successful author of a number of books, is telling you how to get your writing done. <laughs> find, a, find a good soundtrack. So back to American Possessions then, in sum, what are a couple of the take-home points that you'd really like listeners and readers to remember? I hope that if American Possessions does anything, it conjures up, and I do like that word conjures since we're talking about hauntings and demons, right? Um, conjures up some of the ways that the things out there that we call religion, right? And that can be a variety of things, right? Religion isn't something essential. It's a, it's a term that we have. So the things we call religion, popular culture, uh, economy, how all these things are historically and materially intertwined in particular ways, right? And, and also how the practices, ideas, conceptions of the human self that we have change over time and how they're not separate far from but really dependent upon the social structures within which they reside. So I guess the take-homes, the takeaways that I hope for are, are on that abstract level um, rather than learning something specifically right, about a, a particular religious group or practice. Um, it would be those things. Because I think you make that point throughout the book over and over again that when we're talking about uh, demon fighting, we are really talking about American possessions. We're talking about something much larger that speaks to American Christianity, and even more broadly than that, some of those big questions that we've talked about in this discussion having to do with modernity and neoliberalism and all these ideas that we maybe hear about don't always define that well 
but here is a group of people who are answering to a certain degree the kinds of questions that scholars are asking too. Of course, they're inserting demons into the mix, but nevertheless, it's one kind of response. Right. So demons in your future? What, what, are, you, what are you working on now? Any more hauntings? No. Um, well, I, there may be some residue of hauntings coming up in the future, but uh, the project that I'm just getting started on and, and doing it with uh, an anthropologist. Uh, we're calling it right now the Habitus of Christian Punk, and it'll be an interview, fieldwork, and historical study in which we're going to be asking, and we're focusing on the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, what were or are the characteristics, interests, backgrounds, social location, dispositions, and experiences of the people who made up the Christian punk, hardcore, and metal movement of that time period. Ah, so more music in your future rather than haunting. There is, there <laughs> is. And actually, my my uh, the person I'm gonna I'm doing the research with, uh, Hannah, has already made a nice Spotify playlist that we're listening to to think about this. <laughs> so, do you have any recommendations for '90s Christian punk or metal bands that could be interesting for our listeners to look no, up online? I don't. I don't because I'm learning about that right now. Um, there's about a 10-year difference between um, the person I'm working on the research with and me. So, And, and I did actually come out of like a, a punk background in terms of music. Um, but the 10-year difference was that as a punk kid, you know, the idea that there was even such a thing out there as Christian hardcore uh, was totally, you know, it was nothing ever in my mind. Right. Whereas the person I'm working with um, coming 10 years later, saying the, the late 90s, early 2000s, um, that was part of a culture already that uh, didn't really exist 10 years before. So this is really looking then at the growth of this movement over the 1990s into something cohesive, something or maybe not so cohesive, but anyway, something that we can point to as part of the culture. Yeah, and I'm really fascinated by the idea that uh, so as an outsider to this, right, and, and we have a, a slew of people we're, we're interviewing for this, um, these, these folks are evangelicals for the most part. So as an outsider to that religion, that movement, it seems rather odd that parents would get mad for kids going to a Christian music show. But that's the very things that happened, right? So it was a way, you know, uh, you know people are rebelling from their parents by going to an evangelical music show and an evangelical music show that their parents find as much too radical for them, even though the messages are fairly conservative evangelical messages. Mm. That fascinates me. Right. Yeah. Because the medium matters. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, thanks so much, Sean, for being with us here today. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for your musical picks too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> 